So last week I gave a talk on patience. And from that talk there was a number of themes that arose. Um, one of them was that, uh, that of patience for the unfolding of our life, uh, acknowledging that we really don't have as much control as we wish we did. Um, also, we kind of explored being patient with our spiritual practice and uh, that that too unfolds in a way that we don't really have that much control over, even though we would like to, even though sometimes we think we know exactly where we're going. Um, we just don't have a clue, really, until we get there. And that got me thinking about, uh, for this week, uh, this week's theme, this idea of path. In the Buddhist tradition, we talk a lot about path, about the path. Um, this term comes out of the, uh, one of the foundational lists in Buddhism, which is the Eightfold Path. And this is a, a very important teaching to the Buddhist tradition, that there are these um, path factors that are to be perfected through practice. And through the perfection of these factors, we become free. We become more awake to how things really are. Um, so this word path is really, is kind of an interesting word. It's almost, as I was getting to think about it, it's almost unfortunate that we have this word path. It gives this illusion that there's this linear movement of practice, that there's this beginning and then we move forward to the end of it. And I know from my own experience that hasn't been the actual feel of it. Um, it's more zigzag sometimes. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward and then three steps back. Sometimes it feels very circular. Uh, sometimes it has this feeling of being much more in motion and um, not linear in any way. So this idea of path and what we do with that, um, even as we look at the list, it gives this illusion of, of you know, step one, step two, step three, as we go through, and that we're supposed to check these off as we become more and more enlightened. And uh, I, I don't believe it works this way. Life isn't this way. Life isn't something that we just check off as we go through it. Um, so I wanted to explore this, this idea of what is the path? What is our spiritual path exactly? Not what does it consist of necessarily as far as these path factors, but um, what is our experience of being on a path? Does it even feel like a path at times? What qualifies as being on the path? And so there were three stories that came to mind while I was contemplating this. And the first one is a story of a, um, that actually comes out of a conversation that I had with a mother and her daughter. And um, the daughter being in, she was in, I think, her freshman year of college. Um, it actually uh, became quite obvious that she had a really strong addiction to cocaine and she was uh, spiraling down. And um, not only was her addiction a problem, but she was engaged in a lot of um, just self-harming practices at that time. And it was really scary, I think, for, for her mother, obviously. Of course it was. And her family. And so to uh, intervene, to do something about this, her mother... Um, had her go to a, a camp that was in the wilderness for young adults and teens who are struggling with addiction and also different behavioral issues. So uh, she wasn't forced. She chose to go. 
um, and was, I think, fortunate enough to, to be able to go. And it ha- made a big difference in her life, uh, as, as she says. And at the end of her time there, I believe she spent an entire summer at the, in the wilderness going through a lot of therapy, going through a lot of experiential exercises, um, uh, becoming sober while she was there, um, getting clean. And at the end of a number of months being there, her mother was asked to come out and experience with her what she has been going through. So the the parents are asked to come out and um, go on hikes and go through some of the therapy and experiential exercises with the their children. And so this mother went and did this. And as they were out in the middle of the wilderness, they were in a therapy session with one of the counselors. And they were kind of going through what their um, experience had been during her period of being uh, um, addicted to, to cocaine. And so the mother was expressing not only her, the hardship that came out of that for her, but um, expressing that she really believed in her daughter, that, that she saw the goodness of her daughter and that there was um, uh, great potential uh, that just wasn't being um, seen, she felt, by her daughter. And so she felt her daughter was lost, very lost. And this is probably a term that I would imagine many parents would use uh, when they think of their child, if their child is struggling with addiction. And so she kept saying this, I just feel like she's lost, she's she's fallen off her path. She's fallen off her path. And she just kept saying this as she was talking. And at some point, uh, the therapist interrupted her and said, you know, what if we considered all that has happened as part of your daughter's path instead of her actually falling off of it? What if this is part of her path? And so in the conversation that I was having with this mother and daughter, this is, that, this is years later, um, from this experience in the wilderness together, they expressed how incredibly impactful that suggestion was for both of them, for the mother to actually see that what her daughter had gone through was actually part of um, her life, that it wasn't something separate from who she was, it wasn't something separate from who she was about to become, um, that this was, this was a part of what she went through as part of life. And, um, and for the daughter to also hear it and to then be able to more accept just what she had gone through, to not feel quite as much guilt for what she had gone through, that there was, um, I think before this feeling she expressed of, uh, of being lost, that there was something wrong, uh, um, inherently wrong with her. Um, that she was lost and would not be able to come back. And um, almost like it was a part of her life she needed to erase in order to um, come back to where she started from. So you can see as they're exploring this, there's this real interesting sense of time here. Um, I related to this story just in in that way, this sense of time. Uh, This idea that you know, we, we might start out early in life with this idea of how life is going to go, that we have these intentions, aspirations, and then as life starts to unfold, life happens. <laughs> so there are things that we do that we uh, hadn't expected to do or things we wish we hadn't done there are uh, major events that happen that completely change the course not only of our own life, but perhaps the lives of the people around us. And there can be this sense of, I need to get back. I need to get back to before all that, to who I was, to the real me. Or there can be this sense of, uh, I need to you know, veer more towards my true purpose in life 
and get rid of all of this other stuff. This isn't me. This isn't me. So there's this real sense of, interesting sense of time here, and also a, an interesting sense of self. There's these parts of ourselves that we, that we wish were not there, that we'd like to deny, that we'd like to forget, that perhaps we're embarrassed about, that we find ugly, that we find shameful. Um, and perhaps we do a lot to get away from that even. When we think of our spiritual path, I think the danger sometimes can be that we have this idea of what, who we are or what we should be in order to be on that spiritual path. And that there's perhaps fragmented parts of ourself that we are denying or are um, trying to um, divorce ourselves from in order to be on that spiritual path. It's almost like we are creating a sense of self that is the spiritual self. When really what we're doing here in this practice is to better understand our full self in order to, in fact, let go of all of those perceptions, ultimately. And so this idea that we, um, that we need to, in fact, deny these parts of ourselves uh, is just unnecessary and, in fact, somewhat harmful when we are on uh, the spiritual journey. When I think of this story, I also get this image of somebody walking down a path and then stepping off of it into perhaps uh, the woods or into the brush or whatever, um, and then needing to come back on this really smooth, solid, obvious pathway. Sometimes I've thought of my own spiritual journey in this way, that, oh, I've completely veered off and I'm now lost in the thicket, and I need to make my way back in order to be on my spiritual path. And I'm questioning that. I think we should question that, that when we veer off, that that is also our spiritual path. There's nothing separate. And when you think of it in this way, then we start to think, well, what, how is my life different from my spiritual life? Is there actually a separation in my mind? Am I compartmentalizing? This is the spiritual part of my life, and this is just everything else. (laughs) When we come here, do we feel like we're doing something different here when we're practicing than when we walk out the door? Do we compartmentalize our spiritual practice in this way? Do we have this sense that in order to be on the path, it needs to look and feel a certain way. What's ironic about this, I think, is that most people come to um, spiritual seeking because something has happened in their life or there's uh, a dissatisfaction in their life. So that perhaps you're here because you're looking for more happiness or connection or there's um, a sense that there's something bigger out there than just the sense of, of me, me, me. Whatever the reason is, most likely it's coming out of a place of um, difficulty, uneasiness, unhappiness, um, confusion. And so you could say that all those things are lost, one being lost, uh, one not being on the spiritual path. But if that is in fact what is bringing you to the questioning, to the seeking, then how could that be separate in any way from from your spiritual path? If you think back before you even had a practice, would you say that you were not 
on some kind of journey? Were you just a lump on a log, not doing anything? Probably not. You were probably living your life. And just in living our life, I think in doing what we do, whether we're aware of it or not, as we start to uh, just wonder or question, does this bring me more happiness? Does this really create connection? Does this uh, really fall in alignment with what matters to me? You know, those are just regular questions. There doesn't have to be anything necessarily inherently spiritual about it, right? And yet, they're very, um, I think you could say, spiritual, spiritually based in, a, in perhaps a light way. And so where does our spiritual practice start and where does it end? Where does it get excluded? Uh, can we actually fold in all parts of ourself and all parts of our life into this idea of spiritual path? The second story that came to mind when I was thinking about this was the story of Angulimala, which is a really popular story in the Buddhist texts. Probably one of the most popular uh, stories in the Buddhist texts. And Angulimala was a serial killer at the time of the Buddha. And he was um, uh, started out, I guess, robbing people uh, on the roadside, and then it turned into... Um, murder, and he was killing people uh, who were trying to pass through the woods. And it got to a point where he was even taking their fingers, this is kind of gruesome, but taking their fingers and created a garland that he would wear uh, as he, um, as a way of, of noting how many people he had actually killed. So he was taking trophies. And at some point, he reached 999 people. This is how the story goes. And he was looking for his 1,000th victim. And the Buddha saw this and, uh, uh, and decided that he needed to put a stop to this and saw that he could put a stop to this. And so he went to Angulimala. Angulimala saw him and didn't realize that he was the Buddha and began to pursue him to kill him. And Angulimala is now running through the forest after the Buddha, and the Buddha is walking very peacefully um, down the road, knowing full well that Angulimala is chasing after him to kill him. And Angulimala is running, 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 but for some reason is not able to catch the Buddha. And even though the Buddha is going very slow, so there's some, some kind of power that's being used here. And Angulimala becomes really frustrated uh, and starts yelling after the Buddha, saying, Stop! Why don't you stop? Let me kill you. And uh, the Buddha stops, and he turns around, and he says, I have stopped, Angulimala. Now it's time for you to stop. And there was something in that moment where... um, doing what the Buddha was uh, really... Uh, gifted at was was seeing the exact moment what to say in the exact moment for individuals so that they could awaken and this was exactly what Angulimala needed to hear was stop it's time to stop and so he did and not only did he stop but after a brief conversation between the two he realized who the Buddha was and asked if he could um, ordain and become a monk And so you would think that of all people who perhaps were not worthy of uh, being a follower of the Buddha um, or someone who could even change the direction of their life and actually engage in a spiritual life, you might think perhaps a serial killer. But the story goes that the Buddha did bring him into his community and he became a monk. And not only that, but he actually um, became an arhat. He became awakened over time. 
And so this, these ugly acts of Angulimala, I think this story is really um, uh, very interesting in that I'm guessing that most of us here haven't done such incredible acts of violence. And yet, perhaps we question our own ability or our worthiness on the spiritual path. Perhaps we question our ability. Um, You know, we often say here that we are our worst critics. We are certainly, um, I think, uh, much harder on ourselves than any of our perhaps harshest critics out there. And so I think that folds into our spiritual practice. Um, We get stuck in doubt. We get stuck in this idea that this isn't for us. And so here's the story of this man who committed these incredible atrocities, who actually changed his life's direction in that moment. And so you could say that at that moment of becoming a monk, his spiritual life began. But it was the atrocities and the violence and the anger and the delusion that he was living beforehand that actually led him there. And so he couldn't have gotten there, perhaps, without the other. And this is a very extreme case, of course. But it's worth thinking about. What is it in our life that brought us here? Do we deny it when we are now in our spiritual practice? Can we fold that in as well as part of what we've had to learn and what we've had to learn from? In fact, uh, what Angulimala did continued to follow him through his years as a monk. The story goes that at some point he returns to the villages where he actually committed these murders and he was on alms rounds. So you can imagine the people in the village seeing this person that they associate as being the person who killed all these people in their village, people that they knew, and now he's coming asking for food. And so uh, although he was well taken care of by many people, and well-respected in these particular villages, he was often chased out with rocks and sticks and was beaten and, um, and um, horribly abused. And so he would come back to the Buddha and, and say what happened. And the Buddha would say, bear it, Brahmin. You have to bear this. This is part of your karma. And this is so much better than it could have been. And so the story goes that uh, if Angulimala had actually continued the acts that he was doing and had continued them uh, without stopping, that he would have lived a life of hell, basically. A hellish life. And and in Buddhist practice or in Buddhist belief, um, that his life would, then he would be reborn into subsequent lives of hell and, and... unpleasantness. But because he actually used all of what he had done and learned from it and actually moved into a completely different state of mind, an open heart, a deep practice, a concentrated mind, uh, and then found awakening, even then he was still bearing the karma of what he had done, but it had changed quite drastically. And so this is, again, something that we can think of, think about, when we think about um, perhaps our past acts, our past um, life events, things that we've done that perhaps we feel we're still paying for now and perhaps we think are taking us away from our spiritual um, practice or our spiritual path. That perhaps what we're experiencing now is nowhere near as vile or or difficult than it would have been if we 
if we had stayed in that state of being, if we hadn't actually done anything or learned anything from it. And then the third story that I wanted to share, um, this is about uh, Kisa Gotami. And she was a woman living at the time of the Buddha who um, lost her son. Her son died, and it drove her mad. It drove her crazy. Uh, Just such intense grief. And it was this grief that actually brought her to the Buddha. She brought her son to the Buddha, asking him to, with his powers, bring him back to life. And the Buddha, in his wisdom, said, I will bring your child back to life if you can bring a mustard seed from uh, a household in your village that has not experienced death. And so she goes back to her village, determined to find this household, and searches and knocks on every single door, talks to everyone in the village, and of course, every single one, one by one, tells her, I'm sorry, I can't give you a mustard seed. Uh, We have definitely experienced death here. And so as she's going through the village, and you can imagine the desperation that she's experiencing, um, and perhaps even a little bit of hope that she'll be able to bring back her son, and then time and time again being told that, no, they've experienced this as well, and so they cannot give her what she's needing. But in turn, they give her exactly what she needs, and that is to hear that death is a part of life, and that it's something none of us can escape. And so through this incredible hardship, she emerges to a great understanding that this life is something that goes, cannot be untouched by death. That this is part of the truth of being human. And then from there, from this realization, she decides to ordain with the, with the Buddha. And in doing so, becomes a nun. And over time, through practice, she also, it said, becomes awakened. And so her deep grief and loss uh, was not separate from her spiritual life. I think that, too, is something that when we're on this path, sometimes we get this idea that we will be untouched by grief and by loss. That if we um, act well and we do good deeds and we... um, Uh, behave in certain ways that are uh, considered holy or spiritual, that we will somehow be untouched by hardship, that life is going to be a certain way. Life will be good. And our idea of life will be good um, perhaps doesn't include all of this hardship and loss. But of course this is ridiculous and not true. And we know that, of course, deep down, but sometimes we get this sense that it's not going to happen to us. And so even our loss, even our um, experiences that seem to be so low, this too can be part of the spiritual practice. It is part of the spiritual practice. There's so much, in fact, to be learned from, from deep loss And so perhaps it is even what brought you here. And so it can't be left out of what what we're doing here. And so I'm sharing all of this with the the hope that uh, we can all take a moment to reflect on what is it that we leave out? What is it that we perhaps even want to escape from the rest of our life? through our spiritual practice. And so what I'd like us to do is to, in fact, explore this a bit together. Um, You're welcome to stay quiet and uh, think think about this on your own, but I think it would be nice to actually get you to turn towards somebody next to you. And it doesn't matter if you know them or not. 
Um, the idea here is to voice what's true for you and to be witnessed in, in voicing it. And so the person who's listening to you, um, they won't need to comment on what you've said, but simply to listen. So everyone here will get that opportunity to simply listen to the other person. And then you'll have the opportunity to express what, uh, what your relationship with this topic is in terms of what is it that you leave out of your spiritual practice or the idea of spiritual path. So go ahead and turn towards somebody next to you. Introduce yourself if you don't know each other. And again, if you prefer to just stay quiet, that's fine. And then I'd like you to... Oh, is anyone looking for somebody to partner up with? It can be a group of three. That's just fine. Mm -hmm. Great. And so just taking time, each person taking time to answer that question for yourself. What is it that, what is it that you leave out of your spiritual path? What are you not folding in? And let's turn back, thank, thank the people in your group or the person in your group and then turn back to the larger group. And so um, what I'd like us to do is just, I'd love to hear just what, what came out of that, uh, those of you who are interested in sharing. And also if there's any questions that you have that, that came out of that. And we'll pass the mic around when it becomes available. And until then, if you could speak loudly so that we could hear the best we can. Okay. Yes, go ahead. Uh huh. I think it's really, really valuable to um, put it into practice. You know, not to just be listening and trying to get information, but to actually yeah. be experiencing it. I really, really like those those things and. It was really nice to, um, it's like we had quite an age range among us, and yet it was like, which I'm very aware of right now, but um, it was like we really shared, you, you know, we didn't say, you didn't have time to say a whole lot about what your experiences were, but I really felt like that we we do all suffer, and, um, you know, we do all, we, we pretty much agreed we don't particularly want to incorporate that into into our path, but... <laughs> We know that it has to be, and um, yeah. uh, and I have a question. Um, yes, when you talk about someone becoming awakened, mm. what what exactly does that mean? Yeah, I feel like I should know, but I don't. <laughs> I think you know in the suttas they. I'm not speaking from personal experience here. <laughs> so, in the suttas, what they what how they express it is freedom from greed in the mind, delusion in the mind. Um, and hatred in the mind. So to be free of all of that, that those uh, no longer arise, they no longer take hold, we're no longer driven by those three factors. So that's one of the ways that it's described. Yes. But thank you. I think you're, I agree, the, the experiential, and to be able to... Um, I think to be able to voice it sometimes rather than just to listen and take it in, which is, can be a useful way to take in a Dharma talk, but to actually be able to explore it for ourselves personally is really helpful. And then to hear that we're not alone in this, that you know, we, we all have some way of relating to this is really, really helpful. So thank you for that. And then uh, if you'll just wait for Carrie, who's got the mic. Raise your hand again so she can see you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, in my old practice, we used to say bringing the Buddha to work. Uh-huh. And I had forgotten about that. <clears throat> and 
your talk reminded me <clears throat> that I haven't been bringing the Buddha to work. <laughs> um, and how important it is because it gives you so much space in whatever, I don't want to say suffering because <clears throat> I have a great job and it's not a suffering type of job, but <clears throat> excuse me, but it's definitely has its challenges, right? Yeah. And instead of taking, I was talking to my the partner here, instead of taking it to heart, it's so much better to see it as part of the path and mm. to understand that, wow, this is, this is one way to think about things and to be mindful of what thoughts are... We talked about Vedna and how the feeling tone of how you look at things can change how you react to situations. Yeah. So um, thanks for that. It was good to remember to bring... I'll remember to bring them tomorrow to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I... Um... I guess you could say my day job is uh, teaching mindfulness in education. And I teach others how to teach mindfulness in education. That's more of what I do these days. And one of the uh, phrases that I love to use when teaching others to teach it is that everything is a teachable moment. We go into the classroom to teach mindfulness, and you have a kid who pops up and says, this is really boring. (laughs) And, you know... If you've got a student saying, this is really boring, I don't really want to do it, that could be really paralyzing to to you teaching mindfulness. But actually, it's the perfect teaching moment to bring mindfulness in. And what you're saying just reminds me of that, that we can always use everything as a teachable moment. If we think of it in that way, in that light, then we we aren't paralyzed by it. We don't have to be. We can actually use it um, to to look at uh, the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths or just look at how am I relating to my experience right now? How is this informing my mind and my heart? Um, and, and go from there. Yeah. Yes. Um, I kind of... Well, I'm like have a questions around karma and that idea, and I guess um, maybe there's something strangely simplistic about the stories of the Buddha from the Buddha stories, and I guess my kind of working definition of karma is like if you kind of have kind thoughts, your actions will be kind, uh-huh. and kindness will be returned to you. And then there's also these, but there's these kind of these stories of like you know if you do bad stuff then, you know, even later on, even if, you, you know, if you're a serial killer and you become a monk, you're still going to have a life of suffering. Mm-hmm. But also, if you do everything right and you're a good person, you're still going to have suffering. And that's when I, like, get confused. Like, then it's like, what, like, you know. Like, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And kind of that there's something very simplistic about, like, mm-hmm. do bad, you get bad. Yeah. Yeah. Do good, you might get some good, but you're also going to get bad. Like, there's yeah. just, um, so, yeah, I don't know if you can explain. Sure, I can go explain. further on that. <laughs> yeah, and it is that that I that that framing of it is simplistic. And one of the things that it's interesting, the Buddha talked about karma as actually being one of the things that we can't fully comprehend unless we're completely enlightened and a Buddha. Um, so to fully understand karma and how karma works, it's very complex, actually. And, um, and it's something that we, we can't really track either. You know, what's happening to us today, um, you might have a sense of, oh, it was because of these actions but, um, in the past, but it's, it's hard to say. I guess in terms of our practice and how it's useful, um, that's what we wanna, how we want to look at in terms of how do we understand karmas how do we understand it in a way that's actually useful for our own um, development? And um, although it is ultimately more simplistic than the the true way that karma works, understanding that our actions um, have an effect on, on what comes next. We don't know when that effect will arise, we don't know how it will arise. Uh, although one of the things that 
is important to understand about karma is that it's not like it's written, sketched in stone. You did this, so then 10 years from now, this is going to happen. It doesn't work that way. The way that the Buddha talks about it is that, so let's say Angulimala, he did these horrendous acts, and if he had continued in this way, uh, his karma would have, you can imagine being in the mind of, of someone c- causing all that, that harm, what that would do ultimately. But he did something different. And so he actually, in, um, in the moment, changed the outcome of his karma. And so to bring this more relative to ourself, um, when we, let's say, in, a, in, in maybe a more relatable story, let's say that we said something to someone we care about and we really hurt them. We hurt their feelings, we hurt our relationship with them, we hurt their trust. Now, if we don't repair that and we live in denial that we even did it or we decide we don't care or we decide, oh, well, they just deserved it, um, the outcome of that will, will be probably suffering. And it might be suffering for in that moment or it might be suffering that reoccurs over and over again, most likely. If we go back to that person and express our wrongdoing, that express our apology, um, even if they don't forgive us, the fact that we have seen our our wrong ways, that we've done everything we could to make amends, to make it right, how we then uh, experience that uh, will be really different than if we hadn't done that. So we might not have regret about it anymore, or we might not um, have this feeling that we could have done more. Or perhaps the relationship mends and, and time moves on and, and, uh, and everything is actually okay. So you can see how just in the moment we are affecting the karma that is arising. We can, in fact, have an effect. And that's why it does matter. <laughs> It does matter what we do in each moment. Yeah. This but also for other reasons, for calamity besides karma? That's right. That's right. You mean as far as um, things that happen in our, in our experiences that are not necessarily related to karma. Is that what you're talking about? So biological. So That's right. Besides karma leading to bad things biological stuff leads to bad things. If we get germs, if we get old. That's right. Um, The Buddha was still subject to old age sickness and death even after he was awakened. Um, uh, Besides biological, there's natural calamities like if you get struck by lightning. Lightning caused it. I had a friend in high school, Mm -hmm. in in college, whose sister had fallen off a rock in Yosemite. Mm. And he was, you know, why did God have to allow that to happen or God cause that to happen or whatever right. it was a, it was a big struggle and i was thinking you know long time pre-buddhist thinking for me well because her foot slipped i mean you know i mean there's is there a why there's a, there's there's just a physiological That's reason right. why things happen lightning um floods is not necessarily bad karma it's just right there, there's there's other things and i i don't remember what the other two are actually so there's karma there's biological there's there's Natural world. Natural. I think I think we can get tangled up in the karma of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't that the That's Jews right. bad karma caused them to die. Is that someone else's you know karma and volitional evil? That's right. Uh, caused that death. It wasn't. It wasn't a. You know, it didn't lead. It's karma a, didn't lead that to happen. There's there's another thing also. Yeah, I can't think of that's what a, it is right a now. Tangly but one that's hard to explain. Something to do with the dhammas or something, but. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, really the way it's talked about, it's a natural law of how things are. It's a, it's a law of nature. It's not even Buddhist. It's just the law of nature. And there are a lot of laws in nature. It's just one. So that there's, there's other effects. Like gravity is a law of nature. It has nothing to do with karma. <laughs> We're not floating to the ceiling in that... You know, and that has nothing to do with karma. So that's right. There's there's a lot 
uh, affecting moment-to-moment experience. And uh, I think the reason he talked about karma so much, he talked about karma a lot, was because we can, in fact, affect it. It is something that we can affect. We don't have full control over the outcomes, but we can affect it with what we do, with, with our thoughts, even uh, with our intentions. It all has an effect on, on our karmic outcome. Related to the original question, not related to the karma question. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, with, what's within spiritual life or outside of spiritual life? And I, 20-something years ago when I was studying counseling, came across a teaching that talked about you know, what, the inner workings of what's going on and all, all of the voices that we have, the multitude of voices that we have inside of ourselves. Each one is really trying to look out for our own best interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes in a diluted sort of a way. But it's trying. And when we become uh, aware of that and pay attention and listen to that, we can find out what is it trying to teach us and there's wisdom in that someplace or other. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with other people. Other people, the voices in them, even if the voices are coming at us in ways that we prefer they didn't come at us perhaps, that voice has some bit of wisdom in it, or at least it's trying to express some bit of wisdom to protect the self of the person it's coming from, or maybe even trying to look out for the well-being of others around or something, sometimes in diluted ways. But when we can stop and be aware of it rather than just simply getting reactive, mm-hmm. then you know, that, that moment of awakening, if you will, becomes a moment when we can sort of become aware of the, the processes and and um, you know the causes and conditions. Everything is comes up because of causes and condition. And which cause or which condition are you mad at? You know, you're right. mad at you're mad at the event. <laughs> but if you look backwards, you go, well, so what led to that? And what led to that? And what led to that? And it becomes infinitely complex pretty quickly. And how do you how do you resent any of those things? You can work to change it, but mm-hmm. when we think of it in that way, you know it it's not hard to see how compassion can really arise for ourselves or for somebody else when we think about uh, being angry at somebody else for their actions. If we, you know, sometimes, yeah, our understanding of, of what had happened and our feelings about it, anger can be perhaps the most reasonable response. And then we can really think about it and look at what is it that we're angry at. Uh, who is it? What action and what led to it? We can start to really think about it in this way and suddenly our, our view of what's really happening starts to expand and include something much larger. And um, I think that from that place, compassion can arise, that we, we're all in this mix together and sometimes we're the one doing the wrongdoing and sometimes it's the other person. And... Um, and we're, it's just, we're these complex beings living in this complex flow of experience and of life. And, and we don't always see it so clearly. Oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we're in just such a state of delusion as to what is really happening here. And it seems so real and so true in that moment. But when we can really step back and be patient, as we talked about last week, there's just so much more to see. And when we see it like that, when we see that open view, we, we're, we become free of all the tightness and of all of the um, kind of microscopic uh, um, point of view that, that we're holding on to so tightly. Even to ourself, this idea, this small sense of ourself that's now been hurt um, begins to expand and let go and become more free. We have moments where we experience this. It's not, it's not that uh, we go th- also through this idea of the spiritual path that we're working, 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 and then bam, there's this <laughs> explosion in our mind and, and we become free of it all. No, it's, it's in this moment, in every single moment, we can have this experience of clarity, of, of really understanding what is happening here. It doesn't happen in the future. It happens now. It happens in the moment. And so um, 
yeah, all of this just to kind of blow our idea of what path is and where we are on it. So I'm just noticing the time, and so we definitely need to stop. But thank you, everyone, for um, just engaging in that in that exploration. Let's dedicate the merit of the time that we spent together. Oh, I have a lot of cards here. Okay. So we'll begin by dedicating the merit to people who are on our minds right now, people in our lives that are in need of... of, um, what we're cultivating here together. For Dennis, metta for health of body and spirit. Uh, To myself, for having the courage to face my childhood abuse. For Cindy, oh, for Andy, sorry. For Andy, And I think it's and all his intentions. For Russ Hickman, who had a stroke last weekend. May he have health, well-being, and the highest good. For my dear friend Colleen who is near the end of life. For Rick, may he work through his rough spot. For Ellen, and may her light shine for a long time. For my friend Ilma, for Ilma, may she be in a safe, may she be in safe realms. For my cousin Joni, she's in the fourth stage of brain cancer and is in hospice. So we can hold all of these people in our hearts and those who are not mentioned. Dedicating the time that we spend together, which is very precious and meaningful, that all that we're cultivating here together be not just for ourselves, but for the people mentioned and for all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and have contentment. May all beings have health in their mind and in their body. May all beings have safety from inner and outer harm. May all beings be free. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.